0: Good morning, good to see everybody here on time. I actually got caught, I may have mentioned this in the past, but I got caught on one of these, I can't remember if it was a spring forward or fall back day, but I showed up at church, this was for an evening service, so we had already switched clocks for the morning, but uh, I was there and there was one other person and, and we couldn't figure out where everybody was. Then the pastor walked in to start opening things up and said, what are you doing here? I said, we're here for church. That's no, not for another hour. Luke chapter 9, come to a pivotal point in our study of Luke today. We'll be taking a look at the first 10 verses, Luke 9, verses 1 through 10. I'll read, you follow along. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet, from your feet, as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostle told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida far God's Word. Well, there are two things that continue to amaze me. Planes in the sky and ships on the sea. Consider planes. They, They fly through the sky without any visible means of support. Now, I understand, that's not news to anybody here. But uh, I live right under the flight pattern to LAX, and it never gets old. I mean, consider that if you're flying across the country in garden variety 737, that's 175,000 pounds of mechanics and fuel and, and, and passengers and luggage and fuselage and wings hurtling through space with no visible means of support. And if you're traveling around the world in an A380, that's 1,265,000 pounds of the same hurtling through space without any visible means of support. Think about ships at sea. Passenger ship, uh, roughly 100,000 tons. Uh, Cargo ships, uh, 200,000 tons, just a little bit less in weight than the Willits Tower in Chicago, which was, within my lifetime, the world's tallest building. Uh, Oil tankers, some oil tankers, weigh 600,000 tons. None of them sink. They all float. They're made out of welded steel. Most humans from throughout history would have considered these modern day-to-day occurrences as absolutely and utterly amazing. I don't know why, but this week the thought crossed my mind. What would Joan of Arc have said if she saw a plane fly overhead? Well, they're not... As amazing these occurrences as they may seem. Planes in the sky, ships on the sea. Because as great as they are, they attest to something even greater. That they, they attest to the thing that makes a plane fly or, or that makes a ship float. A plane in the sky attests to the law of aerodynamics. And a ship on the sea the principle of buoyancy. In fact, the law of aerodynamics not only makes a plane fly, it keeps it in the air so that when a plane is subjected to the law of aerodynamics, it can't help but fly. Which is really helpful for a guy who doesn't like to fly and for a lot of his life was just waiting on any flight for the whole thing to fall right out of the sky until I realized this plane can't because that the law of aerodynamics makes it fly. It's doomed to fly. The same is true with a ship. The principle of buoyancy not only makes it float, but keeps it floating, so that when a ship is subjected to the principle of buoyancy, it can't help but remain above the water. So while a plane in the sky, a ship at sea are... Are great the law of aerodynamics and the principle of buoyancy are even greater now why do i mention these two things because over the last few weeks we've watched jesus do some pretty amazing things he exhibited power and authority over the natural world when he calmed the storm on the lake over the spiritual world when he liberated the man who lived among the tombs, over the physical world when he healed the woman with the the chronic illness and the girl with the fatal illness. And as we've watched Jesus do these amazing things, I've been noticing this as the weeks pass. Maybe you have too. Uh, He did each one of those things in the same way. In all four cases, uh, fear was rising as death was encroaching. Uh, First on the disciples in the boat, right? Master, we're dying. Uh, Then on the man who lived among the tombs. I beg you, don't torment me. Then on the chronically ill woman who trembled and fell before Jesus. Then the father of the gravely ill girl, who fell at Jesus' feet and implored him to come to his house for help. And then what happened? Well, in three of the four stories, Jesus exhibited his absolute power and authority by simply speaking a word. And everything turned around. Fear and death immediately gave way to resurrection and life. Jesus spoke a word, and the sea on which the disciples were dying was settled. Jesus spoke a word, and the man who lived spiritually tormented and totally naked among the tombs which were full of death, in a moment was now spiritually clean, entirely clothed, and seated before the Lord full of life. Jesus spoke a word the girl who was dead, was made alive at that second. And in the fourth case, Jesus said absolutely nothing. But by simply touching Jesus' garment, the chronically ill woman was immediately healed. Now, all these amazing things, as great as they are, attested to something even greater. And this is something about which Luke wants us to be Certain, that, that's the purpose of his book, right? Certainty in these things. And it's this. The kingdom of God had come, and Jesus was the king. All of his miracles attested to that. All of his miracles pointed to that. In fact, Jesus' miracles attested to the primacy of his message that the kingdom of God had come in him, which was the focus of his ministry. So back in chapter 4, when the people of Capernaum are clamoring for more miracles, Jesus says, no, no. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well because I was sent for this purpose. Now, up to this point, the 12 disciples had been only passive observers of Jesus' ministry. They they had watched Jesus preach the message of the kingdom. They had watched Jesus perform miracles that attested to his kingship, and they'd done it all from the front row. I mean, they had seen it all in living color. But here in chapter 9, Jesus calls the disciples to become an active part of his ministry, to advance and expand his ministry with him, and to do that in ways that were obviously beyond themselves. Which brings us to this morning's main point, and the main point is this. To follow Jesus, the 12 couldn't rely on the amazing miracles. They couldn't rely on the swelling crowds. They couldn't rely on any kind of increased notoriety to keep them in step. Rather, to follow Jesus, the disciples, and here it is, here's the main point, the disciples would need to rely on Jesus entirely, and specifically in four ways. First, They needed to rely on the call of Jesus. We'll see that in verse number one. They'll need to rely on the power and authority of Jesus. We see that also in verse number one. They need to rely on the mission of Jesus. We see that in verses two and six. And then finally, they would need to rely on the person of Jesus. And we see that in verses three through Five, The call of Jesus, the power and authority of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the person of Jesus. That's the way forward this morning. So first, uh, for the twelve to actively participate in the ministry of Jesus, they needed to rely on the call of Jesus. Now, no- notice there that the disciples, they didn't volunteer to be an active part of this thing. I mean, there's there's no indication that they asked for this chance, they didn't submit applications. In fact, it doesn't even seem that they were looking for this opportunity. No, instead the disciples were called into Jesus' ministry by Jesus himself. And it goes back to chapter six where Jesus initially called the 12 to be apostles. Uh, An apostle, by definition, is one who is sent. But at that point, the apostles weren't ready to be sent. So in the subsequent three chapters, uh, Jesus prepared them, equipped them, discipled them, if you will, so that here in chapter 9, when he called them together again, they were ready to be sent as ministers on his behalf. So the disciples were called to do that for which Jesus had prepared them. And that was helpful to know and it would be helpful to remember especially as the rising tide of opposition came up against Jesus' ministry. So for the disciples to follow Jesus they would need to rely on his call. Jesus chose them, not the other way around. We rely on Jesus in the same way, don't we? We didn't choose him. He chose us. That's what Scripture tells us. Because Jesus chose us, Colossians 3.12, we can become the kind of persons and do the sorts of things that he wants us to and that we couldn't have been or done otherwise. We, we don't just become ones who are reformed. We are entirely transformed because Jesus called us into relationship with himself. Because Jesus chose us, James 2.5, we can be poor in this world, but heirs of God's kingdom. Because Jesus chose us, 1 Peter 2.9, we share his identity and receive his mercy. We who had no identity, we who had received no mercy to begin with, we have all that because Jesus chose us. We looked for none of it. It's all of Christ, because like the 12, Jesus chose us to follow him. I was talking to Rob Dedham earlier. We were uh, thinking about Ephesians, too. It's the gift of God, not of man, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Second, the disciples needed to rely on the power and authority of Jesus, power and authority that was given to them by Jesus. Notice here in verse 1, and he gave the 12 power and authority over all demons, which signals the presence of God's kingdom in the world. We'll see that later in Luke chapter 11. And he gave them power and authority to cure diseases, which signals the presence of God's Messiah in the world, as foretold by Isaiah and mentioned already a couple of times by Luke here in this gospel, chapter four and chapter seven. This was the power and authority with which Jesus was endowed at his baptism in chapter three, with which the crowds were amazed at the outset of his ministry in chapter four, and until now, only Jesus had exhibited But here, the 12 were given that same power and authority. Uh, As as one scholar puts it, it was uh, like their formal investiture. Jesus gave them authority to minister in his name as well as the power which attested to that authority. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, uh, when the disciples failed to rely on the power and authority of Jesus, they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing at all. In fact, we'll see it multiple times before the end of this chapter, even next week in the feeding of the 5,000, and then in the transfiguration of Jesus, and then in the healing of the demon-possessed boy, and two more times after that. That's why Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can't do anything apart from me, you can do nothing. And neither can we. We can't do anything apart from Jesus. And Paul really drove this point home to the Corinthian church. Uh, Second Corinthians, he keeps bringing bringing it up time and again. So in chapter two, he writes, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message weren't plausible words of wisdom. That is to say, they didn't make any human sense. But in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Two chapters later, he writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay, our own mortal bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then just before the end of the letter, Paul Paul concludes with this. For the sake of Christ, whose power is made perfect in weakness, I'm content with weakness, Paul said. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So to follow Jesus, the twelve would need to rely, even rest, in his power and authority. And none of their own. Third, the twelve needed to rely on the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. What was the mission of Jesus? Well, we see it right here. It was one of preaching and healing. And that is prophesied by Isaiah back in the Old Testament, inaugurated by Jesus here in the book of Luke, chapter 4, and seen in the church throughout every age since. That mission, the mission of Jesus, became by extension the mission of the Twelve. So Jesus gave them what they needed for it, power and authority. We saw that in verse number one. And then in verse number two, he sent them off to do it, right? He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And then again down in verse six, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everyone. I want you to see three things in particular about this mission. First, the mission of Jesus was about Word and deed. Word and deed. Word first, deed second. That's often and easily turned around, as summed up in phrases such as, uh, they don't know how much you care until they. uh, uh, They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Or, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. But the Scripture reveals that preaching takes top priority in the mission of Jesus, preaching the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Christ and preaching it not as bad news but as good news. This is why the pulpit needs to be the prow of every church. That's why a teaching ought to be the beachhead of every ministry. Now, this is not to say that deeds had no place in the mission of Jesus because they obviously did. But it is to say that they needed to assume their proper place, one that pointed at or attested to the truth of the gospel rather than overshadowing it. But as to deeds second, the mission of Jesus was about caring, it was about caring, not conquering. Uh, how tempting it may have been for the disciples who had ge- uh, seen Jesus exhibit this power and authority over the natural and spiritual and physical worlds to think more in terms of subjugating and conquering and thereby elevating themselves than service and caring. But Jesus' example was clear- clearly one. Of caring, and of service. Luke 440, when the sun was setting, when the sun was setting in a world with no electric lights, no uh, illuminated stadiums, when the sun was setting, then all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Caring, caring example was part of the mission of, of Jesus. It was and it remains an exhausting one. That's why from time to time throughout his ministry, Jesus withdrew to quiet places. That's why at the end of this account, Jesus took the 12 and withdrew to Bethsaida. That's why our staff elders have begun to retreat in October for a few days. This is why ministry staff are eligible for a three-month sabbatical every six years here at Grace. A ministry of caring costs. And as I remember a fellow named Warren Wearsby saying, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Third, the mission of Jesus, it's fundamentally relational rather than religious. Uh, Jewish preaching uh, in Jesus' day was uh, very much calling people to follow the law. Uh, When they would go to proselytize, it was about following the law. But Jesus' preaching called people to follow himself. The Old Testament attested to the coming of the Messiah. The miracles about which we've read and have been speaking attested to the arrival of the Messiah whose mission was to announce that the kingdom had come. And Jesus was the king. All that to which Old Testament religion pointed was now realized in a relationship with him. Jesus was the fulfillment of all religion. So for the disciples to follow Jesus, they would need to rely on his mission at the heart of which was Jesus himself. And that takes us to the fourth and final thing on which the disciples needed to rely. The disciples needed to rely on the person of Jesus. We see that in verses 3, 4, and 5. Now, this seems to be arguably the heart of the passage, and we know that because of the the grammatical brackets that mark the beginning and ending of this uh, section. Bracket one, Jesus sent them to proclaim and heal, that's verse two. Bracket two, they departed to proclaim and heal, that's verse six. So what's in between those two brackets speaks to the core of what was required of the twelve to participate in, to follow, to take part in the mission of Jesus. So, notice to begin with, Jesus told the 12 what to take on their mission, and you'll see there in verse number 3, he basically told them to take nothing, right? No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. This is reminiscent of what God's people took when they fled Egypt in Exodus 12, basically nothing. Of what Gideon and his troops carried when they marched into battle against Midian. Hardly anything. Of what Jesus said to those who heard his sermon on the mount. Jesus said, seek God's kingdom before anything else, and I'll make sure that you're clothed and fed. The twelve could never have so little that it would be impossible for them to follow Jesus, because Jesus was all that they needed. And Jesus is all that we need. No rites, no rituals, no pilgrimages, no indulgences, just Jesus. The late Charles Malik served as Lebanese ambassador to the United States. He was president of the UN General Assembly. He was a history professor at the American University in Beirut. And 42 years ago this fall, I had the occasion to hear uh, Malik speak. And I'll always remember the way he began his talk. It went like this. I can live without food, without drink, without sleep, without air. But I cannot live without Jesus. I can live without food. Without drink, without sleep, without air. But I cannot live without Jesus. Malik understood what Jesus wanted to impress upon the twelve. He is enough. He was enough for them. He's enough for us. He's enough for Christians in the Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in Iran. In India, all the hard places, Jesus is enough. Again, we can never have so little that it will be impossible to follow Jesus because Jesus is all we need. So to begin, Jesus told the 12 what to take on mission. And second, Jesus told the 12 where to stay. And they were to stay only with those who would have them. We see that there in verse number four, and only with those in that one place. You think, well, why is that? Well, it kept them from going around looking for better places to stay. <laughs> it kept them honest and it honored their hosts. And as for those who wouldn't have them, well, Jesus instructed them to shake the dust off their feet as they left town, which really wasn't so much a symbol of rejection as it was a warning. That to refuse God's kingdom message was serious, that judgment was coming, and that repentance was necessary. So, equipped with a profound reliance on Jesus, his call, his power and authority, uh, his mission, and his person, the 12 were off. And they did everything that Jesus asked them to do. They preached the gospel and they healed far and wide, verse number 6. And they returned safely and with no negative report that we can see. But their effectiveness fomented opposition, even at the highest level. You'll see there in verses 7 through 9, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and wondered in verse 9 if John the Baptist whom he'd beheaded, talk about cold reasoning, I beheaded that guy, wondered if he had been resurrected, had been raised from the dead. Here is curiosity, which he shared with the community at large. This was a very plausible thing to them. Curiosity along with the community was a tribute and as much as it was a threat. Jesus and his mission. Well, a mission that was all about, really, discipleship. Michael mentioned it at the outset of the announcements this morning, didn't he? Jesus had established and equipped the 12 so that they could participate in his mission of engaging and evangelizing the world. We're going to see this again in chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the 72. Jesus was strategically preparing disciples who could effectively follow him in this world come Herod or high water. To follow Jesus required that the 12 rely on Jesus. His call, his power and authority, his mission, his person, because as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. To rely on Jesus in Those ways meant that the disciples could only be effective. And so it is with us. Let's pray. Father, we want to live lives that are effective for your work in this world. And that means that we need to rely on your Son. His call, His power and authority mission, His person. And Lord, we can't do that in and of ourselves. We've seen this morning that when the disciples tried to do that, man, they flopped and fell flat on their face. May we rest in you. May we find you to be entirely sufficient for all of our needs. So as we rely on you, we engage in effective ministry for your sake, for the sake of your kingdom in this place, throughout the community, and around the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.